to just get better, better at coaching, better at being a competitor, and have that bridge between the science world and the anecdotal world to come up with a way that we can fast track progress as much as we can. Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast. This is the podcast for every average individual who wants to achieve above average results. You want to live an above average life and you want to do it in an above average physique. So we are going to give you above average content, education, and value to help you do just that. And today's guest is going to do way, way more than that. I'm very excited about this one. This is something that I've been looking forward to. This is a podcast and a conversation I've been super excited about because he's one of the leading experts and uh, really just evidence-based professionals in the bodybuilding space. When it comes to professional bodybuilders, coaches, educators that actually implement the science and have a background of the science, he is one of the go-to guys. He is one of the people that stands out in my mind. Um, But not only does he teach it, he actually walks the, the walk. He doesn't just talk it. Like this guy steps on stage and does the damn thing. So Uh, Today, we have John Jewett, who runs and operates. He is the founder of J3 University, which is a phenomenal educational course for physique development. So whether you are the enhanced lifter, the bodybuilder, the coach, somebody just interested in body fat loss or hormones or muscle growth or whatever it may be, he is uh, running a course that is phenomenal for it. We're going to talk a bit about that as well as his applied hypertrophy course, the uh, female course that he runs. So he has a lot of different educational portals and courses that he actually runs through J3 University. Um, He also has a long standing background as a powerlifter, bodybuilder, and a coach. So John is a IFBB pro. He is somebody who has stepped on stage in the 212 category as well as the open category, which are two different categories of bodybuilding, uh, 212 being a certain weight class and then open being bigger. Um, so he's he's literally grown through different classes and he's performed really well. He just placed in the top three uh, at Legion, which is a huge competition. It's been really cool to see his journey and he puts out so much great content around it. Um, he is also a dietitian, so he has the background of the science of the master's degree. He's worked in the hospitals. He's done so many different things, and I cannot wait for you guys to listen to this podcast and hear his story, hear his upbringing in the industry, his, his hear his powerlifting transition from powerlifting to bodybuilding, why he did that, how it implement was implemented, how it affected his bodybuilding career, and then how he built J three University and what he teaches inside of it. Um, add to that, this is not a podcast that is just selling the course because we talk about that for like five minutes at the end. This is a podcast all about the education and the science of muscle growth, training, and fat loss. Like You are going to learn about some of the evidence-based practices that real-time bodybuilding educators, athletes, and coaches use to be the best in the world. And that's what this podcast today is all about. So without any further ado, uh, let's talk to the one and only John Jewett. All right, John, I am excited for this, man. As I uh, kind of was mentioning to you before we jumped on, I have been and just consuming so much of your content lately. It's uh, I've been personally in the industry for like 12 or 13 years now. It's all I've ever done. I'm, I'm 31. So as soon as I graduated high school, I got into this stuff. I started going to school, interning and just never looked back. And um, so I've, I've learned a lot. I, I feel like I know a lot. You never know enough, but I know a lot. I've, I've read up on so many things. I've done so many certs. I've done, followed so many people. Um, so for, uh, and I say this to kind of hype you up before the podcast starts, it says a lot when I find somebody's content and I just can't stop digging into the rabbit hole. And then I'm like, okay, let me check out this, this little course he has. And I'm like, ah, you know, I'm going to buy the applied hypertrophy. And then I start going through that. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do J3 university. And I just start <laughs> going through all the content, um, both the paid and the free content you have. And it's just, uh, it's amazing, man. It's so, so good. And you're very, you're very humble, um, athlete and practitioner, which I really value. So it's, it's not only cool to see, 
um, and to watch and learn from you from a coaching perspective. But there's a lot of people who have a tough time turning off the athlete mindset to be a coach. Like it's either like one or the other, they're like an athlete slash influencer, or they're an educator and they don't pursue the athletic. And you've done a really good job of balancing the two, which I just respect so much. And I, I love being able to follow and it's, it's, it's inspiring, man. So very excited to have you on and I'll stop now and let you kind of introduce yourself. But for the listeners who maybe don't know who you are, can you just give us a quick, just who John is in a nutshell, kind of give us uh, just like your, your, your name, what you do today. And then we'll kind of dive into a little bit of your background. Yeah, well, yeah, Cody, thanks for having me on. Um, and also for the, the big hyped up intro, it's, uh, you, you say all those things like, oh, wow, like I, <laughs> I'm having an impact over here, uh, which it, we were talking off camera, like you always feel like this level of humility, like you just don't know enough and you're not doing enough. And uh, maybe that's the mindset of just where, uh, why I've taken it where I have. But yeah, I'm John Jewett. I am a, IFBB pro also a, a registered dietitian is, you know, the education route that I took to start off my career from an athletic point of view, I was played all kinds of different sports like you would in, in school. Um, the one that I was good at was usually what people do to get good at their sport, which was lifting weights. So I started, you know, out, out in the, the middle school gym to high school and I was like stronger than everybody. And in high school, I was a uh, freshman year. There was 135 pounds and I, I ended high school at 185. So I never like a huge guy by any means, but really strong. So got found out there was powerlifting, which was like the easy route to go down. Uh, it's what I'm good at. Usually you gravitate towards that. So I found a group of guys here in San Antonio that powerlifted. They were all like right around 40 years old. And it just was eye opening and humbling quickly that I am not very strong. And these guys were like bench pressing like 600 pounds. So talk about, you know, kicking your ego aside. So there's always that <laughs> like, all right, you're, you have so far to go. Um, you're, and I think a lot of people could use a, a kick of humility now with what you see on Instagram. But anyway, yeah, I started leaked up with these guys, started powerlifting on my own. Uh, did that till I was 26. So about to graduate out of my master's. Um, along that journey was awesome. I competed in a collegiate powerlifting competitions. I set some world records and just kind of got burnt out of doing it. Once you're going to these competitions, you're kind of beating your own records and getting stagnant in it too. And I, I, in powerlifting, I would, you know, be like in the 220 class, the 198 class. And people would ask like, Oh, are you in the 181 class? You're like, shoot, man. Like I don't even look big. <laughs> so it's like, at some point I want to actually look, uh, as as strong as I am, and I always had bodybuilding the back burner in my mind as well. It, when I was growing up, we lived in a duplex, and attached to our, our the other side, he was uh, an attorney, but he was super into uh, bodybuilding, and he had all these bodybuilding magazines, and took me to the gym for the first time when I was like six years old. Joe's Gym in San Antonio, Texas, and man, I, I, I've been hooked like just with muscle and that aesthetics for a long time. So bodybuilding was always in the back burner of my mind. But along that journey, like powerlifting, um, I I guess I'm just have a, this logical science-based mind. I'm a thinker. I like to know how things worked. And I'm also maybe a bit a bodybuilder, which is a bit neurotic and obsessive. So I would go all in on anything that I did. So getting into powerlifting, lifting, I needed to know how everything worked. 
Um, how can I do this more efficiently just to make more gains? And that's as simple as that was. If you do that enough, all your friends and everything start asking you like, hey, John, should I take this creatine? What are you doing for your biceps? And then you're, you're answering these questions. And man, that engagement was so fun for me, um, so satisfying. And so earlier on, there was always all this knack of being kind of this influence and education piece. So going to school was basically, how can I keep learning to get more jacked and strong? And so did kinesiology, exercise science was my bachelor's, which a bachelor's degree is where they teach you to know enough about everything. So you feel real smart, uh, but you don't really know much. I then went on to my master's in nutrition because I really like the nutrition and meticulous side. And in your master's, you realize how much we really don't know. And it leaves you with a lot of questions. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's also a humbling degree. We're like, man, we don't really know a lot. And there's a lot of gray area in this and not a lot of black and white. So it's very hard for us to speak with affirmatives in things. So it, it keeps you as a humble educator in a way. I didn't do the PhD, though. That's where you go and explore the unknown of what we don't know, right? But I was still like rubber meets the road. I want to be a practitioner of, of this aspect. So started off after I got my RD and nutrition degree as a clinical dietitian in the hospital setting because that's really the only place where you can make your entry-level mark to make some money. And, and at that time is when I started competitive bodybuilding and turned pro uh, not too far into that. I was 30 years old when I ended up turning pro at, at the USA. So here I am. I'm a clinical dietitian. I'm a IFBB pro, but I'm unfulfilled with my clinical dietetics and Having some coaching clients on the side, I eventually had to make the choice of like, hey, go all in on coaching and bodybuilding or go all in on being a clinical dietitian. Uh, and I was – the time I was doing food service management and clinical. So I manage like the kitchen in a hospital, workers, and have to go see patients. To get good at that, you have to do more continuing education, advance up those ranks, which is going to put like learning about coaching kind of on the back burner. And man, that was a really depressing thought of me in like 20 years, seeing myself in the same hospital, nine to five, just unfulfilled. Mm. So I said, screw that. In, in two months, I put everything I could after work going to build up the client basis. And I said, all right, I need to cover my hospital salary with clients in the next two months. And then I'm leaving. Like, that's it. And I did it. I think it was like 30 clients. I left the hospital. And went all in to being just a uh, just running my own business and coaching. And still, because started off my that was uh, around the time when I just started competing at the pro pro level. And kind of what's uh, transpired for the next the past two one has been eight years now of competing as a pro and building the business. And what just initially started as questions from friends in high school of John, what creatine should I take? <laughs> to questions from other pros, from other athletes of uh, me explaining the things I was doing through social, like, hey, I'm lifting and this is kind of why I'm choosing to do this. And people would engage with that because they were learning. Be like, Yeah, that makes a lot of logical sense. And through that is when I started building off and, and made sense to just want a resource for my clients that I had. It's like, gosh, I'm repeating myself all the time. Like if I just had something where I could send them to, and they can learn about this exercise or how to do a client check-in. That's what I started off building. 
and then it, it soon later become like, this is kind of like a course and it developed into being what it is now, J3 University, where we're coaching coaches on the A to Z of how to be the best, you know, physique competitor that you can be. And, uh, and, and now competitive wise, I've done the Olympia three times and just transitioned from 212 to the, the open division. So that is, I guess it's still the short story, but I felt like that was the long story of who I am and where I came from. <laughs> I love it. That's perfect. And we're going to, we're going to definitely circle back to J3U, but I have a quick question about it. What is J3U is obviously university. What does J3 sure. stand for? Yeah, I am John Jewett the third. Hmm. Very self-explanatory. So that's, why the, that's where the, the three, the three comes in. Um, Got it. Simp, I, simple as that. I wish there was like, yeah, it's JJJ. No, there's nothing. Just, uh, yes, my, my last, my last name credential. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it works. J3U just sounds good. It flows. It's perfect. So I just didn't know. Sometimes there's like this long, like I've had that too with uh, our company's called tailored coaching method and the R is inverted. And I've had people okay. be like, I've been staring at the logo is the inverted R about it starting from within. And they have like this. And I'm like, well, no, but I kind of like that. Maybe it, it was like, honestly, a designer just put together a cool logo. And I was like, that's it. It's like, let's do it. So sometimes it's not as much as it seems, but, um, Going back to some of your story, uh, I did, you kind of explained why you shifted from powerlifting to bodybuilding from the sounds of it. It, it sounds like, uh, maybe a little bit of the science-based interest you had, uh, in physique development and nutrition applied more to bodybuilding, but also maybe, um, being able to, uh, advance more through that. You saw that path and you, you wanted that, but I'm also curious of how much of the powerlifting, um, as well as the dietetics degree applied into your bodybuilding in your, your career as a, as an educator. And I ask this because there's, you know, there, there's a good amount, but I also would say limited because we still have a lot of questions. It's kind of like gut health with like the muscle fiber types. And for a long time, there was people that would say like the, the, you gotta lift heavy for like dense muscle. Like I always remember reading about that. Amazingly. You gotta get dense muscle. Yeah. And sometimes I wouldn't argue it. Cause I'm like, well, those guys, they do look just hard. They look like they've got like very mature muscles, but is that really just from years in the gym, whatever? But I'm just curious because there's also research that shows higher injury risk with powerlifting and, you know, like maybe volume is more important than load. And so there's so many like variables now, what actually applied from powerlifting the most into your bodybuilding career? And then, um, I'll let you answer that. And then I want to ask a question very similar about the dietetics degree. Cause they're two separate topics. Yeah, so uh, there are, there are positives and negatives com from coming from the powerlifting to bodybuilding transition. Um, also, I guess you probably have to keep in mind the the time period that this happened in, because at the time we had a lot of like in the, even in the, the literature side, we didn't have really hypertrophy research. It was all pulled from strength training research mm -hmm. and trying to cross over and explain hypertrophy. And then even at that time as well, social media wasn't around. Uh, so there wasn't this era of, of being overly informed. And so you had to rely a lot of just of hearsay through like, even still it was kind of magazines or some forums that you come across. So I had, I had a lot of influence in powerlifting for using a similar methodology, translating that into bodybuilding, which the immediate connection for me, because coming from powerlifting, you're all about chasing strength and numbers. It's move weight from point A to point B was coming across like you know i was reading through elite fts which is you know they came from west side barbell and louis simmons and it, it was all like pretty high effort 
uh, strength training, pretty close proximity to failure on time, which probably isn't the great for injury risk. Uh, but I connected with this high effort failure set type training and also chasing numbers, which can be good. So there's a positive like mentality of I know how to work and grind weights that came from powerlifting into bodybuilding. So I think that's a missing link for a lot of people now is like, man, just training hard gets you very, very far. And there's far too many people that are just scared to death to train hard because of fatigue and overtraining. I need a deload. How many rest days should I have? It's like, man, this, this can get pretty weak fast. Just train really hard and you're going to get very far. Now that's very bro, right? Sounds bro, but look across the evidence. Like it, it kind of holds true. Yeah. So, so with that being said, like that, I learned a lot of that in powerlifting. I knew how to grind out weights. However, my first like bodybuilding program was DC training, dog crap training, Dante Trudell, which was my misinterpretation of reading through of like, hey, eventually if you're, you know, bench pressing 405 for 10 reps and you're squatting 500 for 10 reps, like you're going to be a big guy. It's like that makes a ton of sense. And I like getting strong. So I connected well with the logic of the plan and the logic is absolutely there. It's like progressive, you know, load over time with an adequate volume within hypertrophy rep ranges. But my misinterpretation was the point A to point B, it kind of matters a lot now what happens between. And I had that disconnect to where I would just move the weight and I was getting progressively stronger. I was getting bigger. However, the, the injury risk moving from someone that's very strong to a very high volume work capacity, I end up getting like quite, quite a few injuries and having an unsustainable way to train. So so there, there were pros and cons that came along the way from that. And just being in an era too where there wasn't a lot of hypertrophy research coming out, I think there's a lot of tenets within that DC training model that, that are excellent to follow. If you looked across the scoped out of a lot of these training regiments, to, to the untrained eye, they might look very similar, right? You need a certain amount of volume, certain rep range within the hypertrophy realm, um, effort of training, probably pretty close to proximity of failure, and then having all that scaled within your recovery capacity. Do those things, and you should get uh, have a good, relatively good program, and, and also train the intended muscle and, and, and use a, a form that allows you to keep it on that muscle. So if you have all those things in your hypertrophy program, it's, it's relatively pretty solid. And a lot of these good programs have that. DC was meant to have that. I just read it. I just interpreted it wrong because it's on the forums then. And you read kind of into with what your bias you already mm-hmm. have preconceived. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was the start of my transition from powerlifting into, into bodybuilding. I think- and to your point, you, you brought up something. I'm sorry, I won't I'm, yeah. I'll let you talk after this. Was about like uh, muscle quality. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't speak to like the actual. Does it change the look? I, I, I think it's very hard to say. And I, I still think if we looked at the top level bodybuilders and top level powerlifters, it, it's still displayed of the most muscular physique still being with being able to show low body fat levels would be potentially bodybuilders, right? Uh, powerlifters just are just built different for muscle development that they need to move in those specific manners, right? 
Like I, we didn't train delts. We didn't do, I didn't do a ladder raise all the whole time I was powerlifting. So I didn't have big round delts or anything. Didn't need them. So it's just a, it is a different type of development that has occurred. But when I did my first show, it's funny because yeah, man, you have that, you had that dense, like grainy muscle that's there. And that's always been a kind of a characteristic that I had. So um, maybe, maybe it's this way fat distribution patterns go or the, you know, how, how I, I'm a person that could get conditioned. So if that's it, as far as like, does it change the actual, the look of the, I, I don't know, that does, that didn't make sense to me. So I, I wouldn't say that, that it would. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, I think there is a lot of good carryover. And I think that, um, you know, there's, I, I think they say, this is kind of a, a simplistic way of looking at it, but I believe it's, I, I want to say I heard even, um, uh, what is his name? Andy Galpin. We had him on the podcast way back, but like, I think it was, might've been him that said this in a joking way, but kind of serious, like a, a bigger muscle or I'm sorry, a stronger muscle has the capacity to be a bigger muscle. It doesn't necessarily mean if you're stronger, you're bigger, kind of going to your point, you were smaller back in the day and just really strong. But if you have the neurological, the motor recruitment, the muscle fiber type, like if you can lift the weight, you have the capacity to do more volume and build the muscle. Maybe that contributes to it as well. Like the the output ends up being greater when you make that shift to bodybuilding. Yeah, I, I think that very well could be hold true. And also making that shift, you're probably like if you had comparatively someone that hadn't done that previously, like you might have a capacity to have like a higher quality of volume because you'd have a better recruitment pattern of like all motor units and muscle fibers right kind of sooner out the gate so those reps very well could be more stimulating and that the on a per set basis could mean less volume for the individual especially from a recovery standpoint just because it each set could be very taxing however if you had someone that also is extremely strong for that reason they're that efficient moving loads it, it might be a detriment that might limit their volume in direct stimulus to that tissue. And so you might need to transition that portion. Like I think of like a Larry wheels or something, right? Mm. Like, Hey, I'm going to keep deadlifting um, or whatever. Maybe it's a squat, but you need to almost move that person into a position where they're in the most mechanically disadvantaged point to put tension in the muscle you're intending to train. So the, the overall load lessens. So there's less systemic fatigue so that muscle can get more direct stimulus and volume work that, that otherwise might be limited. Mm -hmm. So it may be a consideration point. Like if you are moving from being a very strong powerlifter to, to bodybuilding, uh, having to, to make those considerations for no longer lifting with um, as much mechanical advantage as you can, but how, how can you make lighter weights as hard as possible? And on that same note, um, I would say like my lifting cadence was extremely fast and, and dynamic. So tr also finding ways to make the loads much harder, right? So control the centrics, do a lot of like pauses in LinkedIn phase or dead stop positions, and then controlling the concentric as fast as I can while, while still keeping tension on the, the intended muscle. Um, earlier on, it was so dynamic. And now I think that was part of the problem, right? You you bump up volume and you are, have this challenge of recovery to take place. And then you repeat that bout and man, you might jump into a, a slight bit of range where you don't have quite the control you do. And then connect the tissues a little, you know, a little frayed and pop, there it goes, you know, uh, some, some muscle fibers. So uh, I think also a consideration of, of trying to 
you know, change your rep cadence to really challenge that antenna muscle and um, decrease all the loading that you might require that you did for, for powerlifting purposes. I'm going to, I'm going to say this real quick, just so I don't forget. Cause I want to come back to the dietetics question I had, but I think it'll be yeah. served better when we start kind of diving into J3 you a little bit more in your, the education side of what you do. Cause I like where this is going. And I think one of the, the beautiful things about bodybuilding versus powerlifting is powerlifting can kind of put you in, I mean, just strength in general, I guess, Olympic lifting, even CrossFit, like all these strength performance-based endeavors could put you in this box of the big compound lifts or specific lifts. Whereas bodybuilding, it's like, what tool can we use for this individual to be, like you said, almost the most disadvantaged, like from a uh, mechanics perspective, just to apply it to that direct muscle you're targeting. There's no rules there. It's like, let's use the tools that we have to target the thing we're after. Yes, absolutely. And I will say another another struggle coming from like a strength background where you have like specific lifts that you just have to do is there is an emotional connection to those lifts mm-hmm. that you'd love to do. I mean, how we, we could have a whole podcast right now, Cody, and just arguing that you must deadlift to be have a huge back. Right. And if you go back and forth, like if you said, you know, don't, don't deadlift, you don't need it. Oh man, you could go to war with the other dogmatic group of that. You must hip hinge. Right. So in, on a, on a muscular level, the muscle doesn't know the difference if you're how you're loading it with what movement. So you do have to become more of the the artist and bodybuilding and trying to apply tension to certain areas that you need to balance out a physique. Cause what you find is like earlier on a deadlift could be a, a very viable movement. For example, it, it's like a shotgun blast of stimulus to a bunch of different muscles. The, the problem with that is also it's a, a big blast of fatigue as well. So it might, limit the amount of volume you can train with for that rest of the session to where maybe you don't get enough volume now for like lats and traps to bring up your back because that deadlift wiped you off the planet. Right. I would, it would for me, I deadlifted for a a long time uh, bodybuilding and it was so taxing and my back just was not improving uh, along the same route of some of the other muscle groups I was seeing. And so I, I brought in different movements across the way, like stiff leg deadlifts or RDL, you know, different hip hinge patterns that would make them more mechanically disadvantaged to load whatever it may be, hamstrings, erectors. But eventually now I just don't, I don't even hip hinge because it has to get much more broken down for my needs development wise. So I think that's, that's the takeaways in bodybuilding. You have to lose emotional connection with certain exercises that are fun still have fun. That's an important piece like to, to be sustainable in this for a long time, but also just keep in mind, like what are your physique needs? And if you might need more stimulus to a certain muscle group, it might mean having to cut out a big compound movement because that compound movement could be very well great for a beginner who takes just a little bit of stimulus will make everything grow pretty easy. But once you get more advanced, like, man, you're going to have to get more precise and move that shotgun down to like a sniper rifle for like directing stimulus to where you want it and, and putting your workouts together in that capacity. I love that. That's a really good way of explaining it. I actually, I had a video that did really well that I said deadlift suck for hypertrophy and it was basically the same exact (laughs) thing. And it was kind of clickbaity, but like I, I was talking about this exact topic and like, now that we know more about like the stretch, uh, the the importance of the stretch during range motion and even just the entire stretch shortening cycle of, uh, an exercise. Um, and for most people deadlifts don't do much. And when you get really strong at it, like you said, it's just fatiguing everywhere. 
there was another video we did that I was talking about how you don't need to barbell back squat for big quads, but the podcast producers took out some of it. So like my team posted up on the team page and it just went crazy viral and people were like talking so much shit to me and oh, saying, shit. I was like just this like idiot and like uh, Tom Platts would never say this. Like it was just crazy. And then I'm watching the video. I'm like, I don't feel like I'm saying anything wrong. They took out the barbell back part. So it just said, you don't have to squat. I was like, well, oh shit. <laughs> there's a lot of squat variation patterns. You should probably do it. But like point being is it was very similar to what you're saying here. And I think it's, it's a really good take on point for people is like, you don't need to be married to any one exercise. And, and, you know, just a moment ago, you were actually, you were talking about um, controlling movement and your, your tempo essentially. Um, and that's another topic that has been kind of uh, wishy-washy over the years is like time under tension. Once upon a time, it was like, that's the key. And then it was like, ah, we, you know, we did studies on negatives and it doesn't matter. We did studies on uh, concentric, like slow tempo. It doesn't matter. It's more about volume and load. And if that limits your load, you're actually probably gonna do less volume. That's going to mean less reps, less volume, less load. That's all going to lead to less hypertrophy. But then you make a good point of like, well, if you can't control the movement, you can't isolate the movement. Maybe you do have to slow down. Like, so at what point, like, do you find that balance or is it individual dependent? Like this person's skill isn't there. They have to focus on controlling somebody's skill is there. They don't need to worry about it. Um, do you think there's more importance to time on tension? Just your thoughts in general on that aspect. Yeah. And that's going to have to meet someone across like their different lifting career and also around how, what we're seeing development wise, even risk wise. So of course it's like, <laughs> the you know the scapegoat it depends answer yeah um but let, let me let me you know dive into that further because you know for say a beginner lifter saying like oh you need to have this like deep mind muscle connection a, a beginner lifter it, it's hard for them to have the the self-awareness and proprioception to be able to connect with all the muscle groups so the, i think the best thing with like a beginner lifter is let's make sure they're they're positioned at the start of a lift to put bias towards what we intend to train. And it's almost near damn impossible that th those muscles we want to train are going to have to move it, right? Like we had them under a bar to bench and the bench, the bar comes down to the chest. Like your pecs are going to have to work. Like there's no way around this at some degree in your shoulders and your triceps, which from a get beginner aspect is very well easily to make, make them kind of grow over. Cause we know like they don't probably need a lot of stimulus. Um, now, as we see that person develop develop on, we might see that there is some discrepancies in like, hey, the front delts or the triceps might grow a little bit more. And that's when we might need to make other considerations where maybe it's the exercise choice over trying to just let's figure out the barbell bench press. And we're going to make it work. So I've done that um, too with movement patterns. Like, man, I got a, I got a back squat and um, I got to get this quad growth, but I don't feel my quads. So maybe if I shift my feet this way, or maybe I need to sit back farther, more upright. And eventually I'm like, what the hell am I doing? Let me just go over here and do a hack squat, which uh, I blows my quads up and I just toss out the back squat. So at, at some, at some points also, let's uh, just for one, pick the right movement that the person has the ability to move in and bias that muscle group. Now, as, as far as the balance between like tempo engaging that muscle, like, we always have to remember, like, what are the important things that make the muscle grow? And, and that always takes priority. And so it has to be getting to a point of high mechanical tension, which we know, right, is close proximity to failure. But we can't let the rep range go too high because it gets to our point of, like, one, it's just really fatiguing to get to those high rep ranges and get into more muscular endurance. If we get too low, there's probably not enough 
of that time of tension of, in that simulating high recruitment pattern, you probably need a lot of singles to occur and you probably run into connective tissue issues too. So you need something, right? Like we know like six to for a workable sake, I would say 20 reps, but usually we're working in bodybuilding, maybe eight to, to 12 is still your primor, pr- priority of your, your work. So if you're using such a slow cadence that within a normal cadence base, and by normal, let's say that's, you know, two, three count on the way down, not much of a pause, one to two seconds on the way up. Like I, I feel like that is a relatively normal cadence in bodybuilding that you slow it way down, right? Like a 10 second negative and then 10 seconds on the way up. If you were to move at a normal pace with that load, hey, maybe, maybe 30, 40 reps. So that would probably take you out of that range of being able to recruit those high motor units and then a close proximity to failure, potentially where you wouldn't have that same type of stimulus that you would go into failure in that eight to 12 rep range because um, the, the reps would just go out of what we know works for hypertrophy's sake. So so what I say, and we've seen like really slow, slow training, that's kind of the issue around it. So I still program, hey, a two to three second count eccentric. And then as far as the pause goes, if you're doing that, it doesn't have to happen. But I would say trying to maintain tension on the intended muscle, then press controlled with as much speed as you can with without seeing like, momentum or anything take over or um losing control of that movement and to to your point like man we've seen guys lift like super sloppy and get big because we saw i think jay color made some video of like him like swinging some dumbbells doing some curls bringing shoulder into it bringing all kinds of muscle groups into it but we're like well jay's huge so there is that but but also like that same guy could get a lot of stimulus and connection with that movement because he's he's is is an expert around it but could he have been better man that's a tough one to say you're gonna get flagged and burned for saying that because how dare you about you know jay cutler so you're also seeing someone of the genetic elite to where likely that even though they're swinging around you're like man he's probably not even getting much tension in his biceps like that's all jay cutler needs because he's a freak right these guys don't need to get as nuanced as maybe like us nerdy guys would have to because we have to like pull every variable lever to get the most out of every single thing because we just genetically kind of kind of suck and we're average. <laughs> so um, it, there's just a lot of context, I think, to put of like who you're looking for. Like, well, that guy does it this way. I think that's where, you know, going back to the evidence of uh, is helpful because it helps us look at what's working in the trenches and kind of filter it out and see how it might apply to us. And, and research is great because it looks across averages. So you can get an average idea of what might work for a lot of people. But within that, there's going to be, you know, outliers, which you have Jay Cutler over here where he's barely doing anything. He's growing like crazy. You have this other guy that's an outlier that needs a ton of volume and all, all the failure. And um, that will make him grow like a fifth of Jay Cutler. And so that's where you see it's just all across the board. So I think research is great to help us give a starting framework to work within. And then we tweak that along the way for what we're seeing, how someone's responding. So my last thing, because that was, it is a loaded question. I'm sure I'm not going to hit every, everything here, but with uh, time under tension. Now, I think that's just the verbiage around it. The idea is correct in a sense, but the, the type of, quality of the tension matters because we know we need high degrees of mechanical tension at slow velocities 
to produce that level that creates the hypertrophy stimulus. So you could have a light load that's far from failure, and we could do that for three minutes because this used to be a programming tool, right? You'd, you'd have a time set. And if you're not reaching close proximity failure, you're not recruiting high motor units, you're not recruiting all the muscle fibers, and meaning you're not getting that full stimulus for growth. So it, we still know like it's not the time under tension, but able to get to high degrees of tension, which is going to be required through lifting close proximity of failure. And when you're seeing those, those, uh, that, that that uh, velocity start to slow down when you get to those last few reps of your set, right? High velocities with close pro low velocities with close proximity failures, where you're going to get peak mechanical tension and, and get that, that growth stimulus. So the time doesn't necessarily matter, but we do need, to reach those points within the hypertrophy rep range where you're training close to failure. So that, uh, that, that was a long roundabout way of kind of answering question. It's kind of vague because it uh, just depends on where you are in your lifting career. And, um, and even, even the last, I guess the last point too, Cody is the safety perspective, right? Yeah. As you get older, you're not young, you're uh, a little less risk averse and you, you think you find out that things start popping and twinging. So it's like, how can I do this and still reach those points of high mechanical, uh, tension and failure uh, as hard as possible without sacrificing any growth. And we, we know there's a hypertrophy is a fairly forgiving adaptation that occurs and we could slow down movements. And as long as we are able to get to that failure point close to it with the rep range that's within hypertrophy spectrum, you could get a very good stimulus as well. So it's a, it's a tool to be utilized um, for, I think, safety and longevity in your lifting career. I love that you went as far in depth as you did. And I agree. I mean, I'm only, I just turned 31 this summer, so I'm not old by any means, but I've been lifting every week for over a decade and arguably a lot of it the wrong way in the beginning. Um, I've torn yeah. my meniscus twice, not in the gym, but that ends up, you know, in the same knee I've had, I've broken my foot, which another dumb thing, I dropped a trap bar on it. Like it, nothing cool ever. The second time I tore meniscus, I was rolling out of bed to get my daughter. Like it's just stupid stuff. But from previously lifting bad, previous injuries in soccer, things like that over the years. But my point is, is that it's not just age in general for the people listening. It's it's lifting age, right? Like the longer you're in the gym, the more you got to pay attention to the injury factor. But I love that you went so in depth because a lot of people listening might think that it was going into the weeds, which they love because I do that all the time. So I know they enjoy it. But my point with that is that this is why it's important to have an evidence-based mind because you know, there's a few things, time under tension. Normally people just think like, oh, well, like if you slow down, you have more tension during your set. That's all they think about. But there's way more to it than just that. If they think about, you mentioned the eight to 12 rep range, that was like the hypertrophy zone, right? And it then was, yeah. research came out and was like, you can build muscle in any yeah, rep range. But what rep range is the most conducive based on the time you have, based on the loading parameters, based on taking the set, set to failure, based on the exercise selection? Like you can't just put a blanket number on it and say it's this or say that it's any rep range because there's so many caveats depending on all the different variables. So I, I really like that you go that route. I think it's really important. Um, and it kind of leads me into to one of my questions that I had for you today, which is at what point, if there was a, a big shift for you, did you start to have a more evidence-based perspective? Like, was there a point where you're like, this isn't working and I don't know why I got to find out? Or was it like, this is working, but I don't get why? I need to find out why, like, was there ever a shift where you were like, I got to stop thinking like a bro meathead 
And I got to start thinking like a scientist because a lot of us go through that. And that's what, honestly, a lot of us, that's what encourages us and inspires us to keep going down the rabbit hole of science and research and, and a more evidence-based uh, practice. I, I w- it was always a, a slow, gradual progression into that over time. So I, I would say there wasn't ever a moment because like I mentioned previously, even even in high school and middle school, man, I was asking those kind of questions. Like I remember I was in seventh grade. So this was like the first time I took creatine monohydrate. Right. And people were like, John's on steroids. Like I flex a bicep. They're like, all I see is a big ball of creatine. (laughs) I remember one of my friends said that I was pissed because like, no man, I work hard. But I remember my science class, they brought up like, yeah, does anyone know what ATP is? I'm like, Oh yeah. Adenosine triphosphate. My science teacher was like, what the hell? How do you even know that? Because I was a nerd, man. Like I knew from reading creatine that it had impact on with ATP and what ATP did. So there was always me thinking along the way. It was just the evidence wasn't there yet for what I wanted to do, like within bodybuilding. So as it came out, man, I I would consume everything I could. I think a lot of the problem was not having the guidance to interpret a lot of that for, for the understanding point that I was at, like retrospectively, I I really wish I reached out to more mentors or had a coach earlier on with more like in the trench experience because almost, I I know with evidence-based practitioners, it can take you to a place where you lose sight of in the trench experience as well. And you only focus on research which I think that's the the wrong interpretation. I would almost say along my whole journey, I've been this evidence-based bodybuilder because it's really just trying to have a a, a thinking perspective or a science-based mindset in what you're doing. And and all these coaches that have been in the trenches, they all do it the whole time. They They have a subject pool. They are applying methods and seeing results, assessing, and then altering their approach. Now, eventually maybe they get a little stuck and stubborn in their ways and that's kind of it. Right. So they lose that, that student mindset, but all along the way, like why is there even research studies that come out on failure versus non-failure or slow tempos? Like where did that all come from? It came from in the trenches. So we're testing things that came from what all these experienced coaches are doing, getting results in trying to validate what works and what doesn't with evidence. It's not the other way around where we have all this evidence and now we can now coach people. I think that's what people are doing nowadays. It's like, well, we read, I read all the studies in the books and now I can coach people without any of the experience. And that's when you see like the gaps and results being there or people are up on their high horses now because I'm evidence-based. It's like, so's that bro coach that hasn't read a lot, but he's been in the trenches for 20 years. I would take that guy to coach me anytime over the new guy that has read every single study that's never coached a single person. Mm-hmm. But I think along the way, like, that's where we try to bridge the gap between like the research world and in the trench world and to where what we practice has a good framework of thought that we also respect what's been done before us from coaches. We also look at all the evidence as, as it keeps coming out and letting that kind of shift our approach. And that's how it kind of developed all along the time. And, and of course, like there wasn't a big transition because I would think like, for myself, like maybe I lifted too hard. Maybe there was times where I was a little bit sloppier with form. Uh, maybe there's just young, aggressive John being influenced by other peers around me or training, training groups. Right. 
but I, I would say just the the whole time I always had just how can I do this better and uh, I, I wasn't ignorant to the fact that there was a a science based world out there trying to investigate the the same things of how can we do things better. So so uh, yeah that yeah again there wasn't a point that really came about. I would say going down you know the schooling route is what definitely helped shape a lot of like the critical mind thinking and understanding how to take a lot of different um, ideas around say what you saw in the trenches or all the different evidence that might be, be presented and narrow it down to some type of hypothesis on something or coming up with a practical approach from all these things. Think about was earlier on without going down, uh, maybe you just had you know, my high school degree, that level of thought to be able to analyze that much might not have been there. But with that being said, I know some guys that are phenomenal coaches that have read more than uh, than what was not applicable in my college degree because a lot of it didn't apply at all. And they are phenomenal, what I would say, evidence-based practitioners that, that balance both sides very, very well. So do you have to go through all the schooling like I did? No, but at the time that that was kind of what was out there and you got to work at some point. So, but yeah, I think uh, that is what an, in my mind, what an evidence-based practitioner would, would look like. I think that's where, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think you will, or, or just add to it. But I think that a lot of people mistake evidence-based for science-based, where I, whereas I think part of evidence is anecdote, right? Like you said, in the trenches. So if we take the science and the anecdote we experience as coaches and we put them together. And a lot of times, and this is where I'd love, you know, you can add to, I think, and it's kind of what I hear from what you're saying. A lot of times the science might not be something we literally apply um, because, you know, I think it was, it was Eric Helms. I had him on the podcast and he said something that I wrote down as a quote and I've used multiple times. It was so good. He said in research, we're studying averages, but in coaching, we're studying individuals. And I think that's really important, you know, cause even like you said, Jay Cutler, right. Or, or the random genetic freak, like we have to, we have to understand that maybe the science isn't there to tell us this is the way, you know, the Matador study came out and everybody was like, diet breaks, we have to do it this way. And it's like, well, so funny you, you know, it's not, it's not that cycle of diet break to intermittent restriction, like back and forth, back and forth. It's taking breaks throughout a diet to alleviate psychological stress, maybe some recovery, glycogen replenishment, whatever it may be. Maybe that's just the theory. So the science provides the idea, the concept, the theory, the lens that we can use in our coaching. And then our coaching provides the methods that we implement to actually display the science or, or create the result in somebody. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing, like we were having people do, how long has like refeeds been around or, Hey, it's take like a skip cheat days. Meal. I think back in the day. Yeah. yeah like, yeah. Uh, sh like skip hill and shit loading. Like, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, or, or hell, um, my first book I had was, uh, from Mauro D. Pasquale. He did a cyclic ketogenic mm -hmm. diet. Um, which would have high carb days and the rest of the time you were like doing like low, uh, low carb. So these like cyclic type diets have been around forever, like far before the research world grabbed and directed them towards like weight loss populations and even bodybuilders for that matter. So, you know, the, the, the idea of like we've been practicing these and there's a lot of variables to consider when we implement an approach, whatever this approach may be, whether it's in training, nutrition, diet breaks, for example is like when we, when we first started seeing this come out, for one, it had some positive studies that came out, like 
but you might take like twice as long dieting. However, there might be, you might uphold like resting metabolic rate more. Um, you might maintain muscle tissue more in, in doing this phase. Like, oh, okay, these looks pretty positive. And everyone's like, yeah, diet breaks. We should do all these. Then um, I think Jackson Pios, he was like kind of led a forefront of research around it, looking at like what really happens around, uh, you know, metabolic change when using different diet break approaches. And that kind of led like, man, there's no zero benefit. You're like, everyone's like, oh, so yeah, screw diet breaks. Like just diet them all the way through. It's like, well, again, with all these studies, usually we have to hold a lot of variables constant that are always moving when we're coaching someone, right? So if you have someone in prep, like, man, sleep, sleep, it might be a problematic. There could be uh, psychological stressors, like, like you mentioned, training performance is another, another metric. And maybe there is like hormonal issues that occur or gut issues, right? So all these variables are moving for someone that we're coaching while in say Jackson's study, he's looking at mainly like metabolic factors or muscle retention, but what about sleep quality or psychological stress components? And what does that mean for someone's uh, output for the next week in training wise, or um, it could be like getting them to have like better sleep quality for a duration or improving like GI fun. You know, there's all these things to be considered of, but just know, we now know like, well, one thing, it, it doesn't really maybe improve like metabolic function because we tested that variable. That's what a study does. We're usually having to test like just a one or a couple variables to draw conclusions around it. Then now we might have a study that comes out to look at the other things, right? That, oh, well, while we see they're still so beneficial doing diet breaks is it improves sleep quality and then people have better fat loss. But we need to like farther dive in and have it studied that. So the research is great to help us understand the positivity that or negativity that we see from some approach we're applying to where we just might change our explanation of why we think it works, but it doesn't change us actually still using it, right? So that I see that happen all the time in, in research. So a lot of times studies come out, it doesn't change how I do things, it just gives me better insight into the understanding of, of how something works. And uh, a lot of things that have been going on forever and have worked for a long time are we're still just honing the understanding of why we see them working. And maybe that just shapes a little bit the application of when we would use those items. It's uh, kind of kind of rare where I've seen someone that's like completely swipe them off the slate. Uh, usually it's more of like the hot news topic of uh, deloads don't cause any more muscle, you know, uh, gain than not using deloads. And everyone's like, fuck, fuck deloads. It's like, mm-hmm. no, that's not it. <laughs> that's yep. not it. So. It's, it's funny. I was literally just about to bring that up. We just had Max Coleman on the podcast uh, who oh. <laughs> did that study. And even him, like, I mean, the study came out and basically said that deloads are pointless. And by the end of the podcast, he's like, yeah, I'm not ready to say that they're useless, that you should never use them. And so it, it just goes to show even the person that did the meta analysis can say, we always have to think of more than, you know, just what's in the study. And, and that's so important. It's how you spin it too, right? Like you could say, D loads were pointless, or you could also say that you could have a D load and it also means you don't have to train as much and you get the same type of gains. Mm-hmm. Some people are like, well, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah. The other people you said, no, no, I like to train. Well, that's okay then too. So it can, it can work both ways. Like you could spin that verbiage around. So it's important to know how we, how the interpretations from these studies and being able to read through a full paper and, and understand what, what that means. And even the, the meaning behind significance in a study versus significance in the real world. Like you might see a study that had like a, uh, there was a, I think it was, I won't even bring up the specific one, but maybe like, Hey, insignificant finding of like 
one kilogram muscle mass gain, for instance, right? Like someone's like, this statistically, it wasn't significant, but damn, if I'm in the real world, give me that one kilogram <laughs> muscle mass, that's yeah. significant to me. So there's a, you know, you have to also be able to read into that of like what's significant versus you know, what, what matters and practicality sake. Mm-hmm. But research is fun like that. But again, yeah, we yeah. should always, uh, take, take, take a deeper lens and, uh, Make sure you pour through all this stuff and have good interpretations of it. Yeah. Um, as we're getting close to the hour mark, I want to make sure that we uh, bring in J3. I, I do want to mention something real quick, just because you talked about like things kind of cycle around real quick. So I just want to mention the people uh, listening. Sometimes I've done this. And in fact, I have my computer's on a stack of books to make it closer to the camera. But um, in one of the books is um, I just pulled a stack, a German body comp program by Charles Paul Quinn. I have a uh, hardcore bodybuilding by Hatfield at home, uh, the encyclopedia of bodybuilding, all these old books. It's fun reading some of that stuff sometimes and just seeing what they're doing. Sometimes it's laughable. And sometimes you're like, Oh, we, we do that in a different way. And we know why now, you know, and it's, yeah, it's just cool to see what kind of cycles around what people were using back then that actually worked. And maybe you just have a better understanding of why it works now. So you can actually implement it in a more evidence-based way and do it more, uh, in a more advantageous way context specific way, whatever it may be. Um, and if you like the sport of bodybuilding, if you like physique development, if you just like train stuff, it's just cool. It's, it's fun to read and and learn that stuff, you know, but what you were saying just kind of made me think of that. Now, uh, talking on all this, these different aspects of what it means to be evidence-based and such, obviously a big piece of what you do, if not the majority of what you do now is educate coaches and, and you put a lot of educational content out and I want to bring up J3 uh, University because uh, I'm a huge fan of it. I think the people listening, there's a lot of people who could benefit from it. And so I want to be able to give you a chance to talk about it. Um, I am curious about the dietetics aspect. And the reason I'm curious about that is because I've I've had dietetics work with us on staff. I've uh, coached di- dietitians before um, in their body composition journeys. And it's it's kind of like any other profession really in in the entire world, there's good ones and bad ones. Right. And I think that there's a lot of times where I have found dietitians don't have the, um, the practical understanding of what's required for body composition changes. They're much more, uh, vitamins, minerals, supplements, medical, like there's not a whole lot of macros, uh, fat loss, uh, muscle growth. Like let's talk about enhancement of your physique kind of aspect. And it's, it's unfortunate. I don't, I don't want to say that as a blanket statement because I don't think that's true across the board, but there are times where I think a dietitian, that title is, it's a really big title because it takes a lot of schooling and it's a very important title. And there's certain dietitians like yourself that are some of the smartest in the industry when it comes to body composition transformation. Right. And then there's others that probably don't know that world. So do you think what we're talking about here is the difference maker? It's, it's just that practical application and the dietitian degree, maybe that gives you this understanding of science that a lot of coaches don't have. And you're able to apply it in, in a way to something that you're passionate about and that you're in the trenches with versus the dietitian who doesn't is just not in the same trenches as you. Is that really what the difference is? Yeah. I mean, for, for one, like studying like nutrition, dietetics, like you have to have like it, you go deep on the science side, like into like organic chemistry and all the biomechanical um, like interactions. So you have a great understanding of being able to think through all these body processes to see if something would logically make sense. To work so you can kind of it's great for debunking things and to have that type of logical thought process behind how everything works because otherwise you just kind of see everything at, at face value the, the thing about nutrition and dietetics is that it's a very broad scope of a degree which you wouldn't think so but you know everyone comes up to you like <laughs> that people like hey would you know like 
breastfeeding and I like what you know about my baby and ask me questions like this or I have like someone geriatric that's asked me questions so it's a uh, it's a huge de- degree field that's so broad that you can't get a lot of depth in each area mm-hmm. and you basically see like there's kind of broken down into three big segments you have like community health which is like all the food service programs you see like the food bank uh, women infant children so just like helping people in that aspect, the community nutrition aspect, you have the cl- clinical sector as well. So it's all hospital. Think about everyone in a hospital, all these different disease states. How much do you have to learn to know all that is tremendous. And, and, and then beyond that, you have to know all the management side of like a food kitchen, how to run that. And then uh, with the, with the community side, all those aspects and regulations. So it's like, man, to, to know just enough about fat loss and sport nutrition is a is a niche of itself. It's like think about if you needed to go to the doctor and you needed some type of endocrinology work done, right? You had hormone issues. You go to your general practitioner, they're probably going to refer you out to an endocrinologist that had like some type of specialty degree in that. Mm-hmm. The same thing with like a dietitian. Like we know a lot about a lot of things, there's a good breadth of the knowledge, but there's not a lot of depth to each sector. So once you get out of school, that's when you have to hone in on your niche. And keep in mind, it's just a bachelor degree, right? So it's not even like a, a PhD to where you've studied something extensively. Remember my bachelor's, it was like, you, you'll know enough about everything to think, you know, you know it all. Uh, it's kind of what your RD is, just a bachelor. So you might have an RD that now has a master's degree where like me, I... I had my study, I studied beats and application and sport performance. Uh, so I had like a little bit more honed in of, of knowledge set. But then we have also have other credentials as being an RD. Like you can further your knowledge with like a, a certified sport dietetic and get that. But again, being a sport dietetic, how many sports are there? How many different needs are there for each specific mm-hmm. sport? So you still might not know enough about just bodybuilding and fitness aspect because in our degree, bachelor degree, you get one semester of sport nutrition, super general, right? Sport nutrition. One sector might be like fat loss and like muscle gain or uh, weight loss type transformation work. So you just, yeah, you just don't get a lot of that in school. And so you do have to niche down once you get out and you got to have practical experience. Like when I went through school, like, you come out and you go like do your practicum in the hospital. You don't even know how to talk to people. You know, you're, you're so disconnected of just around like numbers and yeah. application around that, that you don't know how to even have like the, the emotional and psychological connection that you need to really coach people effectively. So to, to be effective in, in like what we do, you absolutely have to have the experience side that, that comes along some type of general base of knowledge, but the, the RDs have a, a great potential to have, to really excel in this area. And we have a lot of them that do. And like you said, there's, there's good and bad. There's like the guy that got straight A's and the, the guys that just barely got by on, on the C's. But um, that's kind of where that field is. You know, it took, it was, a, it was a lot of schooling and I left with, unfortunately, like, like yourself, like I just want to know all about like sport nutrition and, and getting jacked. And I had to do a lot of school to not learn a lot about that. Mm-hmm. But it is what it is. It led me to where I am now today, which um, going through that, asking all the questions why, 
gathering information from anywhere that seemed logical and also through practical experience of myself and clients is what's honed the approach for trying to create a hub for people to just get better, better at coaching, better at being a competitor and have that, that bridge between the science world and the anecdotal world to come up with a way that we can fast track progress as much as we can. And that is J3 University of what, what it's come to be. So J3 University, we have our level one course, which is takes you from assessing someone, uh, what are the stage needs, the development needs of that individual, the psychological, the training, the nutrition needs, where are they at, and where do we need to take them to advance them for their goals on, under physique development, but also I, I deal with a lot of enhanced clients as well. So also from a risk versus reward perspective too. And I, we dive into all the things that apply, nutrition, training, PED-wise, health management-wise for those enhanced lifters, and structuring into how you would execute contest prep and off-season to where you can leave feeling like when you leave that bachelor's degree, you feel like you, you know a bit of everything and it's a great start. Or even if you're advanced, I can tell you how many top pros. This last open show I did, two guys in my lineup were like, man, J3 was awesome. Like I learned this, this, and that from him. Like, dude, well, I'm going to so kick cool. you out of the course, man, because I can't have you beat me. <laughs> but uh, so so I've had guys that are just starting out coaching all the way up to like top pros that go through the level one and, and gain a ton from it because there's so much – to still know. And this isn't me knowing at all. I'm a forever student. I think that's why maybe my teachings come across the way they do because I realized for one, I forgot a ton of shit that I wish I still could remember, but also there's, it's, it's ever evolving and you can learn stuff from so many different people. And the, the moment that I think that I have it all figured out is the moment that I stopped learning and advancing. So I always have a, a student and a teacher's mindset at heart. And I'm going to make mistakes. And I've made mistakes in teaching as well. And information's come out. And I changed my mind. I think that's the humility you need to be a good educator and a coach. So where you can keep that open mind and, and shift when you need to, when you know um, some, there's, a, there's a better way to do things. Um, so that that's our J3U level one, which we open it up the first three days of every month for new athletes and coaches to come in and go through the curriculum. It's lifetime access and it's self-paced recorded lectures. And we do live streams and stuff in it too that are recorded. And there's also, um, we have some other programs that are open anytime. So you had mentioned Cody, like the applied hypertrophy mm -hmm. optimization course. So if that's where we actually jump into the gym setting and we want to get the most out of every single rep. So we go muscle by muscle, give instructions on how to set up these exercises to get the right cues and train the intended muscle. We also just came out with the female module as well, which is, is specific to females. Anything where you see that differentiation between females and males occur regarding physique enhancement is what we cover in that, which has been a phenomenal one. We, we also just came out with a posing course too for uh, bodybuilding and uh, classic physique. So our, our goal, our goal within J3 University is basically to elevate the physique coaching standard and be the hub and main authority in that. So we look, look to be the, the resource to go to, to learn all the things around this. But that's, that's the, yeah, the long story around J3U's becoming and, and what it is. So 
It's perfect, man. Yeah, I, I, um, I want to just say a few things about it before we wrap up because you you summarized it really well and kind of answered all the questions I had about it for for the listeners to hear. And one thing I'll say that kind of relates to the dietetics degree, but it's not nearly as in depth or as long. For my CISSN uh, sports nutritionist, the you know once you get your you have the prerequisites or you get accepted to do it, it's really like a self study, and then you take a test, and the test is very arduous. And but it is, it's a very similar thing. Like you said, sports is so broad. So you learn a lot and especially through the process of preparing for the the test. But then afterwards, it's one of those things where you're like, okay, now I know a lot about a little and I can hold conversations with certain people, but, and I have some cool letters by my name, what's next. And courses like this are what's next for the people listening. If you are a dietet, uh, if you have your dietetics degree, if you have a sports nutrition degree, if you have a bachelor's or whatever, you have to continue your education using more evidence based in the trenches style courses and certifications like J3U, because that's the only way that you can understand how to apply a lot of what you should be taking away from those or the little tidbit that was in there that they didn't go down the rabbit hole, but the the rabbit hole is where your clients live. Like that's where you get that information is with these kind of courses. I also want to say that, you know, I, I have, uh, I have some, uh, enhanced lifters and and athletes and bodybuilders on my roster personally, but the vast majority of people we work with are natural lifters. And, uh, I call them advanced gym pop, fat loss, muscle growth, body composition changes is what we do. However, the course is still very applicable, not only from a standpoint of um, what is the risk, do these clients need to go that route, even like nowadays, hormone replacement therapy, I guess I should say the natural amount of people we work with, there's a lot of those that are on HRT of some sort, but you learn so much about all of those aspects as well as just overall body composition change. And I constantly tell coaches, my coaches that work for me, as well as just coaches who ask questions if you want to be the best coach to help people just lose fat and build muscle, whether they're competing or not, you should study bodybuilding period, because they're the best in the world at doing that exact thing to the highest level and degree. So if you learn that you're going to be able to help these people quite a bit, uh, you just kind of, uh, tone down what you need to do or the length you need to do it or how aggressive you need to get with it. Right. So point being, it's extremely applicable. There's so much, uh, great information between the different courses you got in there, man. And, and I have no doubt you're going to, you're going to take over that space as far as being what you're, you're setting out to be with the education platform. So I'm, I'm excited for you. It's, it's a great course. I cannot recommend it enough. I'll put a link to all that in the description of this podcast so people can check it out. And then before we wrap up, I just want you to kind of mention, um, you can drop the link for that, your Instagram, YouTube podcast, anything like that. So people can go check out your uh, content and learn a little bit more from you. Yeah, I'm, I'm in most active on Instagram. So my personal Instagram is at John Jewett three, again, three, right? Uh, we did just start a J3 University Instagram. So that's, we're now trying to make this the umbrella. Mm-hmm. And because we have other educators that are underneath this as, as well, too. So I have Luke Miller. Um, his business is at No Switch Fitness. So we're all trying to, and also Daniel Coffeen, he's the posing educator. So try to put all this to where it's not so much about John. And I'm, I'm the face of the brand, but we're more like just J3 University, and that's right. what's the face. So, um, yeah, those are the two IG accounts. We have a J3 University YouTube and my own personal bodybuilding YouTube. Both are nerdy, and I explain stuff on either one, so so I follow those. Then, of course, our actual website is j3university.com. Um, as far as, like, people ask me about personal coaching more, I'm kind of scaled back on, on just individualized coaching. I have some clients that have hung with me just for a long time, and, and that's uh, been my little group that I stick with. And I, I always got to keep my hand, you know, out in the trenches and in the fire yeah. uh, just to stay sharp in it. But 
Um, my, my main gig now is shifting towards managing the business, but also uh, coaching coaches because that's been the the most the most impactful, and that's what we're looking to do is make make big impact. I love it. I love it, man. Um, well, dude, this has been a phenomenal conversation. I really appreciate your time. Um, a lot of respect for you. So uh, really just, just thank you for spending some time with us and being on the show. Um, and I'm excited for everybody to hear this one. So guys, if you're listening to this and you enjoyed it, please do us a favor and share this on your Instagram, take a screenshot, post on your story, tag both myself and John so we can thank you for listening, leave a five-star rating and review, and uh, we'll be sure to catch you on the next podcast.